0: Health Voice, Episode 98, What Does a DO Do? Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What's the difference between an MD and a DO? Dr. Hope Toby. Of the Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine joined me to discuss what college students need to consider when making the decision to attend medical school. So, welcome, Dr. Toby. Hello. I'm so glad you're able to be here. So you are, and my understanding is this, this is a promotion, a full professor at the Virginia campus of the Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is a big achievement. But let's think back. Why did you first think about being a doctor when you were growing up?
1: Well, thank you. Growing up, I knew I loved science and I loved figuring things out, like puzzles, putting puzzle pieces together, kind of like discovering the answer to the mystery and so I think those two things really go nicely in medicine because it's science and you're figuring out puzzles and then overriding that was also a general it sounds corny to say but generally wanted to use my skills to help people and then over time I realized I'm I'm a little on the like religious spiritual side so over time I really felt like that is what um, I would say God, but you know, universe, whatever you want to insert. Like, that is what I would say God was calling me to. And it really felt like that was my path and that's where I was supposed to be.
0: Well, we like that calling because we need more doctors. We're looking at real <laughs> stuff. Absolutely.
1: But at some point
0: in that process, you had to decide whether you wanted to attend an allopathic medical school and become an MD or an osteopathic medical school and become a DO. You went with DO. What was the deciding factor for you?
1: I did, and funny story actually, growing up, I went to a family practice physician. I was in actually a rural community growing up myself. And my family practice doctor was a DO and I didn't even know it. (laughs) So when I was applying to medical schools and I was looking at like, oh, what's the difference between a DO and an MD? My mom goes, well, you know, old doc so-and-so is a DO. And I was like, oh really? But I still didn't, like, I didn't go to the doctor very often growing up because we didn't have insurance and all of those kinds of things. So I just didn't realize what the difference was. So I spent, you know, some time researching what is the difference and really the osteopathic philosophy kind of resounded with me and was one of the main reasons why I was attracted initially to the osteopathic profession. And then I did some open houses at an osteopathic school near my college and decided, okay, yeah, this really fits with who I am as a person and how I want to approach treating my patients.
0: Do you think most pre-med school students understand the difference between MD and DO when they're looking at med schools?
1: I really don't think that they truly understand the difference. I think they probably do the same thing I did. And, you know, they read blogs and they look at, you know, various different sources online to see like, oh, what's the difference? you know they read the tenets of osteopathic medicine you know the body is a unit mind body and spirit the body is able to heal itself and self-regulate you know structure and function are interrelated and you have to you know you have to really use all of these things to create a rational treatment and that's really how you're going to achieve the best health for your patient and i think they read those things but they don't really understand that it's actually not just a philosophy because you know anyone can have the philosophy that the body is a unit mind body spirit and there are a lot of mds that believe that as well and do a fantastic job but it's really ingrained in how we approach everything and we don't even have to think about it because it's from the very beginning every class that when you're in medical school, everything that you're taught, everything is from that perspective and that approach. And we're constantly modeling and integrating when we teach and we don't even think about it or realize it because because that is our perspective. And so students are really seeing that approach from the beginning. So when they're out in practice as a physician, they don't have to remind themselves like, oh, you know, my patient is overweight. Well, maybe I should ask them if they are having issues with depression that are leading to overconsumption of calories, that are leading to their overweight. Like they kind of already are integrating all of that and looking at the patient as a person, not just a disease or a statistic. And of course, MDs can do that as well. It all depends on your philosophy and how you want to approach it. But within the osteopathic school, because it is ingrained in all their lectures and how we teach them to take a history and how we teach them to even do a physical exam. Like, they're already thinking that way. They don't have to work or make an effort to think about things from that perspective. Until you finish and you graduate and you really realize, like, when you're a student, you don't realize the gift you're being given by, in each lecture, by having that, like, just is kind of ingrained in the way everything is taught to you.
0: One of the things I see is different between MD and DOs. DOs, of course, do osteopathic manipulative medicine. What is that?
1: Correct. Yeah, so osteopathic manipulative medicine is a way of looking at the body and looking at the musculoskeletal system and then optimizing performance to improve symptoms and diseases. So we use our hand, and actually that's probably another difference between going to an MD school and osteopathic school is like we spend a lot more hours touching other people, people when we're at school. At an MD school, you don't really touch your classmates um, very much at all, if ever. And in a DO school, we spend a lot more time teaching physical diagnosis skills, both like, you know, how to do a joint exam, how to do an abdominal exam, but then also our osteopathic manipulation. And so I think students are used to touching each other in an appropriate way. And then that gets them used to touching patients and generally osteopathic students come out and do a better job of doing a physical exam because they've done it more than once and they're used to touching people. So when we use our osteopathic manipulative medicine, what we're doing is we're looking at the body. We're looking at not just alignment, like you might think, oh, a chiropractor looks at alignment of the bones. Well, I mean, that's kind of part of it, but that's not really what we focus on and what we look at. We look at motion and restriction of motion, so restriction of motion in joints, restriction of motion in soft tissue like muscles and connective tissue like um, fascia, tendons, ligaments, we look at how the body is moving, how the patient is able to use their body to create motion. And then we use our hands to do typically very gentle manipulations to restore that motion and remove any restriction of motion. And by restoring motion in the body, You then can sometimes alleviate complaints if their complaints stem from that restricted motion or discomfort due to the restricted motion. But you're also affecting circulation, you're affecting arteries, veins, lymphatic vessels, you're affecting nerves and so, you can impact disease processes a lot of what i do is you know when i'm using manipulation in children i'm treating symptoms like reflux or feeding difficulties and i'm impacting nerves to do that in specific ways so we're affecting asthma or you know constipation. There's a lot of different things that you think about as a disease that, yeah, I'm going to treat that asthmatic with medication. Of course, you know, they need their albuterol, but I can also use my hands to complement that and improve their symptoms. And okay, maybe they don't need as much medication or maybe we can keep them out of the hospital. So it's just a really nice complement to the rest of your medical skills.
0: Sure. So if I have a shoulder ache, if you can take care of the source of why my shoulder hurts rather than just giving me ibuprofen, that's going to be better in the long run.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's another area that can be overlooked as far as finding the source of the problem. So like I said, I like to solve puzzles. So that really fits with me. I want to find the problem and fix the problem, which can be coming from your musculoskeletal system not just cover it up with a band-aid and say, okay, well, you know, you'll get better, just ignore it. I'd rather fix the problem than have you take ibuprofen multiple days in a row and end up with, you know, a stomach ulcer or kidney issues or whatever other side effect of that medication.
0: And you instruct become students in OMM. What do you enjoy about that?
1: It's probably what a lot of people who teach say. I enjoy those light bulb moments, you know, when when you're teaching something and you see like you can see it in their eyes that all of a sudden it clicks and they get it and they understand and especially with a physical skill like like being able for them to say oh i really do feel that or oh i really do feel the difference in the motion or the symmetry in my partner you know just seeing that moment where they're like this really does work this really made a difference it's just so cool do you have other areas of instruction beyond OMM? I do. So with my background is being a pediatrician. I also teach some of the pediatrics clinical medicine lectures. Um, so I might be the person coming in and teaching that lecture on asthma. And I teach some of the physical exam skills as well. So listening to heart, lungs, um, you know, abdominal exam, those kinds of things. Do you also have a clinical practice? Yes, I do. So um, I'm kind of like half and half. Half of my time through the week is spent teaching at VCOM and half my time is spent at the clinical practice. And it's actually a really nice balance because I enjoy both. I wouldn't want to give up either one completely. So I get to see my patients and I get to enjoy spending time with them. And then I get to turn around and enjoy teaching the students and knowing the impact that I'm going to make on all the patients that they will eventually see as physicians.
0: Nice. Developing the future. I like it. And speaking of developing the future, you have, in addition to your academic duties, serve as a faculty advisor to the VRHA Student Club at VCOM. Why do you think health profession students should be involved in special interest clubs such as the Royal Health Association?
1: So, I think it's really important for students to get involved in clubs. Um, obviously, the RHA is a fantastic club to get involved with, um, and I I think everyone should be involved with that. But. Most medical schools have a lot of different clubs and you have to, you know, you can only do so many things, but get involved with something because it gives you almost an automatic support group of other students who are going through the same thing at the same time and have similar interests as you. So, you know, in your med student class of however many people, like maybe you wouldn't have met Bob, because he sits on the other side of the room, but you both are interested in rural health. So now you go to VRHA, you meet Bob and you become friends and you can support each other through the process of med school because it is difficult. And as you're getting, you know, we all get bogged down by studying, you know, exams are coming up, you're feeling stressed out, you're thinking, why did I do this to myself? What was I thinking? Do I really want to be a doctor? And then that club has an outreach activity. You go to that outreach activity, you interact with the community and it reminds you, oh, well, you know, we just did blood pressure screening. I just helped educate someone on their blood pressure and I know they're gonna go see their doctor and I know they're gonna get help and I know their health is gonna be better in the long term. This is why I'm in medical school. This is why I'm putting all that effort into studying. So it reminds you why you went to medical school it reminds you of the purpose behind all those countless hours that you're going to spend studying and also gives you people to you know complain with and cheer with and get excited with and just have that support group for a lot of students who are probably pretty far away from family and friends and their you know original support group
0: mm-hmm. what else can students do to prepare themselves for their professional careers
1: there's several things. Obviously, a lot of students already are thinking about, you know, just their academic performance through high school, getting into a good college, through college to get into medical school. So I think a lot of people are already, you know, looking at that. But I would also say, shadowing, you know, make sure this is really something that you actually want to do with the rest of your life. You know, so shadow as many. Healthcare professionals, not just physicians, but maybe physicians assistants or other mid levels or nurses or physical therapists, like get a taste for kind of all sides of healthcare to see like, you know, where really is your passion? And, you know, is this something you're definitely going to want to do? I think now more than ever, a lot of our students coming in actually do create a nice balance of you know focusing on maintaining their own health because that's very important if you don't take care of yourself you're not going to be able to take care of anyone else so that's another key component and then the last thing i would say you know just preparing for a professional career Is making sure you present yourself as a professional so it's never too early to go back through all of your social media anything stupid you put online before you knew better or you know that picture from that drunk party in college where okay you were 21 it was okay but maybe that's not how you want to present yourself as a professional so really going back and scrolling through that and editing out and making sure that on all fronts you are presenting yourself as a professional it seems silly to say but sometimes you know if there's competition to get that last spot at the medical school that you really want to go to you and someone else are equal you know admissions officers sometimes will pull up your social media and if they see something stupid that you posted then they're gonna go with the other candidate so really looking that at that and you know if that's also not how like if you later in life when you have patients if they google you you don't want that popping up either and having your patients see that one dumb party you went to in college where you got a little too drunk
0: yeah, I think many of us are glad that social media wasn't a thing when we were in college.
1: <laughs> I I was not a partier in college. Um, I actually don't drink, but that's a common one, which is why I use that example. But so glad that it was not a thing when I was in college because I probably did some really dumb things that I'm glad there is no record of. <laughs>
0: Indeed, indeed. So thinking about, you know, what you knew or maybe what you thought you knew as a first year medical student versus what you know now, what has surprised you the most about being a
1: doctor? Probably going to sound a little dumb because I, technology has advanced so much in the last like 20 years. The first time I used a computer for anything academic was in college so i was not a very good typer i'm getting better but i'm still not the world's best typer just because of my perspective was like you didn't really use computers like in school or at work like i didn't realize just how much time physicians spend on the computer Um, and now in our current age where everything's based on electronic medical record systems you really as a physician, do spend a good chunk of your time on the computer. So, it is always, if you are a bad typer, it is beneficial to take a typing class (laughs) because you will be spending time typing.
0: There you go. Yes, I I always look back at my junior year typing class and go, wow, that actually made sense. I was just getting a, you know, filler credit, but it it did good.
1: We did a typing class in middle school that was, like, on an old typewriter. Like, you know, the actual click, click, click typewriter, and not even an electronic typewriter, just, like, the old school. And I almost failed that class. <laughs> I am not ashamed to admit it. I was terrible. I think I think the teacher just passed because she felt sorry for me. I tried. I tried my best.
0: That's great. So... You know, thinking about, you know, why you decided to, to be a physician, we know there is a shortage of healthcare professionals in our rural communities. What do you think could be done to address that gap?
1: Is actually recruiting students from those rural and underserved communities in the hope that they will, you know, once they're finished with their training, they will want to basically come home. I mean, I'm not practicing in the community where I grew up, but I didn't move to a big city. You know, I am a country girl. I grew up in the country. I'm going to stay in the country. And I think that that is a big part of it. We know we have smart students, high school, undergrad students in the rural communities, in the underserved communities. Um, And a lot of times healthcare careers just aren't on their radar because that's not what they're seeing their friends doing, you know, and you growing up, none of my friends were talking about becoming physicians or going to grad school, you know, several of them were talking about going and working at, you know, a manufacturing plant that was in the area. And, you know, and if that's what they're seeing, it's not necessarily on their radar to realize like just because this is what everybody else is doing. If I wanna be a doctor, I can be a doctor and we need to show them that example. We need to say, hey, this is a possibility for you too. Like, let's get this on your radar um, just so they know they have options.
0: Are you aware of any activities at VCOM to encourage students from rural areas to consider healthcare careers?
1: So there's actually several things that vcom does and i probably don't even know the whole extent of it because i'm not as involved in that side of things from vcom but student clubs are always going out into rural i don't want to say always but very frequently going out into rural communities and doing health fairs whether that's at high schools or um, community centers and you know showing people you know some of the younger high school students that come like hey like I'm a doctor you could be a doctor too you know and having conversations with them about health topics one of the clubs and I'm not sure if this has started up again since COVID they kind of got shut down with COVID but one of the clubs did an outreach event where they would go into some of the elementary schools or middle schools and do a little health education talk on a like a topic and you know just giving them that example of like hey like you could be a doctor, too, if you wanted to. VCalm also, just from the, from the admissions office side of things, a lot of the admissions officers go out to multiple colleges in the area and in rural areas around looking at, you know, like having conversations with those undergraduate students about healthcare careers at career fairs and things like that. They also, VCOM does school field trips. So, a lot of the schools in the region and homeschool groups can come to the anatomy lab and the simulation center here at VCOM to do a school field trip and see, like, you know, some of the cool things um, and simulators that we have and talk about doing, like, healthcare careers. Um, and VCOM also does a summer enrichment program, and that's geared more towards, like, the high school students where they come and spend a whole week, you know, seeing stuff in the anatomy lab and seeing stuff in the simulation center and talking about different areas of healthcare and different healthcare careers and really spending time Playing and exploring what is medicine about? What are the options? What could I do? So, you know, any of the high school students that have, you know, they think they might have an interest in pursuing a career in healthcare, can come to the summer enrichment program. And it's basically like camp. You make friends, you get to do cool stuff, you have fun stories to tell your classmates when you get back to school in the fall and just really seeing like, what is it all about? you know, is this something I would really wanna do? If a
0: middle or high school student told you they were thinking about being a doctor, what advice would you give them?
1: I think I said it already, but I would, you know, emphasize again, shadow some physicians, make sure it's really what you wanna do. And then when you know, like, hey, this is my calling, this is what I meant to do, this is what I want to do. Always, always, always remember, no matter what anyone says to you, because you will have a lot of people tell you things like, it's too much time in school or it's too much money or, you know, like whatever it is, you will have lots of people discourage you. So always remember, you can do it. You just have to be persistent. You just have to be a little bit stubborn, but you can do it and don't let anyone dissuade you because it is possible, you know, and if you come up against a barrier, if you feel like you've gotten knocked down, okay, maybe you put in your applications for medical school and you got rejected and you did not get in ask ask those schools what do i need to do improve to improve like what can i do to increase my chances of getting in the second time around and you know take that time to you know maybe take that extra class that you will show that you have improved your grades or Do an internship or do some more shadowing or spend a little time working on a research team or whatever it is to show that you are working on improving your skills for when you reapply the next time, but just, just be persistent and don't let anyone, if it's really what you wanna do, if it's really what you're meant to do, you know, there will be challenges. I think that they're there for a reason and that's to help you grow and help you learn and to help you be in the place that you're supposed to be at the time that you're supposed to be there and really just, you know, just be stubborn. What can local
0: communities do to encourage new doctors to practice in that community and settle in that community
1: yeah, so if it's not their hometown it can be pretty tough to recruit to some of those communities but i think the key i mean as much as i hate to say the key is money the key is money so partnering with loan repayment programs like the national health service corps or developing a community scholarship for medical school you know that kind of ties the scholarship recipient to returning back to that community to practice for a certain number of years. Um, I know when I was in medical school, there were not very many scholarships, and I applied for one that was from a small town in Pennsylvania. and. I think it was maybe even $5,000. It was not a huge scholarship. But if you got the scholarship, you had to work in that town for two or three years. And I was all about it. I'm like, absolutely, sign me up. Like, you know, $5,000, I'll work there for two or three years. So I did not get that scholarship. Someone that actually grew up there got the scholarship, which I feel probably was very appropriate because it was not my hometown and it was their hometown and they were liable to stay there even more than the, you know, two or three years that I would have stayed there. But I think that that's probably trying to find those opportunities of encouraging the youth growing up there, you know, to pursue healthcare careers and come back and attracting people, you know, maybe that grew up in other communities with those loan repayment programs. Mm-hmm.
0: Because when you're looking at the debt most uh, post-medical students hold, even a small scholarship is better than no scholarship.
1: Absolutely. I mean, well, not to sound depressing, but that $5,000 scholarship, I was looking at it going, okay, it's only $5,000, but by the time I pay this off, it's (laughs) $15,000. Right.
0: All right, so last question, question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America?
1: Well, you probably get this answer a lot, but I would say education, like just dispelling some of those common misconceptions about health, some of those myths uh, that people still hold and practices and things that they do that clearly are not um going to be beneficial for them and then just promoting that health literacy and like letting them know hey preventative visits actually make a difference screening actually makes a difference don't wait until you know you are sick and you have a giant mass somewhere on your body like go in and get those cancer screenings go in and you know do those preventative medicine visits
0: because ignoring problems don't make them go away
1: it, they don't. They absolutely do not. I remember the first time I saw a woman with breast cancer that was so bad, it had literally eaten away through her skin, and you could just see this mass of like, just it, it looked, it was very disturbing. It was very disturbing, and I saw that as a student. And You know, I was talking to the surgeon who was removing it and they said, yeah, she must have been ignoring this for years, just assuming that it would go away because obviously like she should have felt a lump, but then it just eroded through her skin because it kept growing and growing and it was, I don't know how anyone ignores that for years, but obviously it happens and yeah, it clearly wasn't going to go away. And I'm guessing that there may have been an insurance factor
0: involved as well.
1: There could have been, yeah, absolutely. I, I did not ask those questions at that point in time because I think I was, a, I was a third year when I saw that one and I was just so surprised that they let themselves get to that point before they sought care that, I mean, I didn't say anything to the patient, of course. I was, you know, un- I knew enough not to be like, how did you let it get like this? <laughs> Because um, obviously that is rude and not appropriate. Because there are reasons, like you said, insurance, fear, miseducation. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons that people avoid and put off care, even if they know they have a problem. And it's not our place to judge, and it's not our place to lecture. It's our place to help. Then just take care of them and move forward the best that we can.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Shelby. We appreciate your time today.
1: No problem. I enjoyed it.
0: That's Dr. Toby and her wish for improved health literacy. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, make sure you follow the Virginia Rural Health Association on Facebook or Twitter.